the sound person. Josh, do you want to hit record there? Good. Well, good evening, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here. So uh, I'm going to deliver this lecture presentation, as it were, but you'll be pleased to know I've got a proper PowerPoint tonight. We're not going to try and run it off word. And uh, I think I'll stop at various points in the evening where if you want to ask a question or make a comment, you can do that. And then probably at the end of the presentation, there will be a time for discussing. I think I've prepared five questions for us to discuss. Um, and certainly what we're talking about tonight is, is not something I would preach on a, on a Sunday. Uh, this is definitely kind of going a little bit deeper into something. Uh, so I'm going to pray and then we, we're going to kick off. Let's invite the Lord uh, into our midst. Lord, we just want to pause at the beginning of the study and acknowledge your greatness, Lord. And we're here in part, Lord, because we believe we must love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. And we want to worship you, Lord, for the God that you are. Not a God that we think you are, but in accordance with what you've revealed about yourself. And as I share tonight, we pray that you would lead me, that what I say would be pleasing to you, Lord, that it would truly reflect the message of your word. And we pray for understanding and insight into this very uh, complex and, and frightening subject. We commit it to you and we pray, Lord, that you'd make your presence felt here tonight and that you would lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I, I want to share tonight is that this is going to be a one-sided study. <laughs> okay, so when I start talking to you about the wrath of God, don't tell me that I'm getting out of balance and that I need to talk about the wrath of God and the love of God. So I'm just being upfront tonight. There are studies where we talk about the love of God, but this isn't that study. Tonight we, we are looking at what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God. Second point I want to make as preface tonight is that I am not emotionally indifferent to what I'm speaking about tonight. It's not that I don't care and that I'll happily talk about God zapping people, the ground opening up, swallowing people, God sending people to hell. I actually do feel deeply about these issues. So please don't think I'm kind of hard-hearted and you know, don't care. I really do care. So I just wanted to put that out thing, put that out there. The, the Bible sort of recognizes the emotion of the subject. Hebrews 10, this is a verse we'll get to later. It says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we are talking about scary stuff. There's also this description in Hebrews 12, which is aimed at Christians, which speaks of God as being a consuming fire. And that's not a fire to warm your hands on on a cold winter's night. That is a destroying fire. Third, third point, as, and my preface today, is 
that I think this study is most needed. It is a necessary correction to the misguided view that, that prevails today. There is this view today of a particular understanding of what God is like, how he feels about people. And so what I'm sharing with you tonight is counter the typical narrative that we, we have of God. And final point in my preface is that what I'm speaking about tonight, it used to be mainstream, and I'm not talking about hellfire and brimstone sermons where we threaten people with hell in the hope that they're going to be scared into becoming Christians. I'm just saying that what I'm speaking about tonight, the wrath of God, Christians used to speak about this a lot. And in fact, if you were to ask church historians, um, what is the greatest sermon ever preached in the English-speaking world? Of course, there'd be hundreds of answers. But the sermon that would get the highest votes, probably among academics that know about this stuff, is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, this sermon was preached about 280 years ago. It was a key aspect of the First Great Awakening, which, of course, swept the United States of America and, and launched revival. And when Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people were, were screaming and crying out and holding on to the the pillars, the columns in the church, because they literally felt they were going to drop into hell. So, so I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating here. This truly was a magnificent sermon, and that one God used greatly. Um, and if you want some bedtime reading, and actually it's probably better morning time reading, uh, just, just download Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's probably about 10 pages. Uh, and it's a great read, a real wake-up call. Rightio, so why, that was my preface. That was the disclaimer. Now reasons for the study. Okay, it, it is a, also, I see a few of you taking notes. Um, I'll, I'll make a PDF available of every point, every verse, just about every word I say tonight. But I didn't want to take a chance to print, you know, we're saving the trees. And also, I don't like to give out notes now, because then everybody's reading five pages ahead when I'm trying to talk. So now we all stick together. Okay, so this is a significant subject in theology. There are 188 references to wrath in the Bible. Sure, they're not all about God, but a lot of them are. They're 254 about anger. Again, uh, many of them not about God, but there you go. So, so wrath is, is a theme when it comes to God in the Bible. As I alluded to in my uh, preface, this is an avoided subject in churches. I mean, how many of you have heard sermons on the wrath of God? apart from me preaching one a few years ago. Okay, you, you have. Okay, that's good. Well done. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on the wrath of God. I think there is a certain amount of uh, psychological avoidance. We don't want to talk about things that make us feel unhappy or that puts our loved ones um, in a bad way. There's also huge... Uh, cultural resistance to talking about the wrath of God. I mean, people don't even accept that there's a loving God that exists out there, let alone a God who's actually angry with them. So this is something people really 
kick against. Uh, third, third reason as to why I think we need to talk about this subject. I think we have a poor theology of anger. Uh, we've been taught we don't like people who are angry, uh, we don't like people getting angry with us, and of course that's natural. But it really struck me here in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple. He really was angry. You know, he made a whip, um, and I don't think it was just to make a nice noise or for the animals. Um, I think maybe he did apply the whip to a few scoundrels there that day. He, he threw over tables where, where people were working. That's not a nice thing to do if you sort of got your money there that you're counting and people come and, you know, that is, a, that is a real display. And he describes what he did afterwards as zeal for your house consumed me. And Jesus is really angry. And what I want to say tonight is that Anger is definitely not a sin, and, and, and it's my view that as Christians, we don't get angry enough about things. I think we should get far more angry about things than we do, <laughs> and we don't have to talk about what those things might be, but injustice would be a very good example. And then we also have this one-liner from Paul where he says, in your anger, do not sin, and that just shows us that that there is a time and a place to get angry about things. But it's in our anger we can slip very easily into sin. Uh, so point I'm making is that sometimes our theology of anger is a little bit shallow. But, but righteous indignation um, is a very good thing. You know, when I hear about uh, the abuse of children or, or theft or when people are suffering, these things should make us angry. And, and I, think, I think God gets angry about those things too. So fourthly, knowing about the wrath of God is important for understanding the gospel. It's one of the reasons why Jesus died. And the theological term for this is propitiation, which is a very difficult word to pronounce. Um, but propitiation is all about averting somebody's wrath. That's what that word means. And one of the things that Christ accomplished on the cross was to, was to satisfy and avert the wrath of God towards us. He was a propitiationary sacrifice. So, so it's part and parcel of the gospel, and that's why the gospel is good news. It's because we're, we're under the wrath of God. Fifthly, it should be motivation for us when it comes to doing mission in evangelism. It should deeply concern us that the average person in the street out there, that God is angry with them. He is not happy with how they're living their lives. God is exceedingly angry with people. And we'll get into that later, um, how we, we tie that up with, with God's love and his mercy, which are both characteristics of who God, of who God is. It's important that we understand God's wrath in order to understand his, his nature and his character. Because I said earlier, I believe there is a significant distortion of the, when it comes to the character of God. Understanding the wrath of God, it's an antidote to this present overemphasis of the all-encompassing love of God. And I'm going to touch on the subject tonight of God's unconditional love and make the point that God's love is definitely not unconditional. 
And God does not accept us the way we are, which is why we have to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. We are unacceptable to God. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we can't go to heaven uh, without Christ. So I think the contemporary Western church has been guilty of, of misrepresenting God. Furthermore, I think the wrath of God provides an important interpretive framework for understanding reality around us. And if I can venture into politics, shall I? <laughs> you know, it's it kind of just wondering, like, how could God have allowed us to have had 10 years of you-know-who? And, and all that the country went through and that the poorest of the poor has suffered. And, and, you know, sometimes God allows us to suffer as a result of his judgment upon us. And that's a very hectic thing to say, but it is actually the pattern you see in the Old Testament. And sometimes God gives nations the rulers they deserve. Um, but, wow, we, we don't have to go down that road. But it was just a thought that came to me. So understanding that actually God is angry and sometimes he just says, well, over to you guys. Do it your way. Sometimes God hands people over like that. And, and understanding that God does that helps us to understand reality. Um, yep. I think if we don't understand that God is angry about things, and particularly sin in Christians, it can lead us to be soft on sin. And finally, I think there's a spiritual opposition to the subject. And there is this verse that says, in the last days, people are going to abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And I think this idea that God loves everybody just as they are and God's heart is broken, that they don't want to love him back, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's not a teaching that comes from the Lord, as far as I'm concerned. Right, that's my little introduction done. Any comments on that? Chili. I, I shared that point that understanding that sometimes God allows bad things to happen to good people and definitely to bad people, sometimes God allows that to have that as an option in our theological framework of how we understand the world around us. I don't, th I don't think as Christians we can understand the world around us unless we factor in that God is outworking his wrath towards humanity in some places more than others. We'll get into that. Okay, so what is the wrath of God? Well, there are three primary Hebrew words uh, and three Greek words. But fundamentally, if you look up the, the term wrath, even in an English dictionary, it says extreme anger. And I think, too, that wrath is something that people express. Anger, you normally, anger can be bottled up. You know, people can be hugely angry and not show it. But I think wrath is, is anger on steroids. 
and it's, it's, it's actually revealed towards somebody. That, to me, that would be what, what the difference is between wrath and anger. It's a, it's a higher emotion, well, higher as in, well, let's get into the definitions. So, wow, the Hebrew words uh, are pretty hectic. That first word refers to breathing to the nose. I love the Hebrew language. It's a little bit like Afrikaans. You know, it's kind of made up of other little words that are often very expressive. You know, so this word for anger, it's like someone huffing and puffing out their nose there. So, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of, that is the gist of the Hebrew word right there. Literally describing breathing, getting more and more intense. Oh, here's another Hebrew word. It means foaming at the mouth. Okay, there we go. And the, the final Hebrew word uh, just means anger, wrath, rage, indignation. So these are the actual words that are used in the Old Testament to describe God's wrath and, and his anger. And then the Greek language, orche, which is where we probably get the term an ogre from. Uh, this is someone who's you know, pretty worked up. Phumos, uh, uh, that means hot anger, fierceness, and parodismos. It means someone that's been provoked. Uh, so this is just a little bit of the biblical language, and it's sometimes useful to see what, what the terms are. Right, now I'm going to share with you about 20 examples of God getting extremely angry. Um, and I'm not going to be countering them with 20 examples of God being extremely loving, because like I said before, that's not tonight's study. So here are some examples of God's wrath in action, because I think... Sometimes when we talk about things in theory, it's, oh, you know, God's very angry, but, you know, I'm sure he's got it under control. He'll get over it. Um, no, when we read the biblical account, we see that God doesn't get over it and that he definitely does express his wrath towards people. And uh, I, there will be opportunity to comment on this later, so if you're bursting to say something. So I think the first very good example is is the, the killing of the Canaanites. You know, these were, were a people that practiced child sacrifice, that worshipped all kinds of evil. This was a cancer that needed to be outrooted in society. And God commanded Joshua and his people to utterly exterminate the people living in the lands. Um, and there's only one way to get out of accepting that that's what God said, and that's to, to say that you don't believe what, what's in the Bible. Um, and I haven't chosen to actually focus on this one just because I wanted to focus more on examples of God's wrath towards his own people. Uh, but you get the idea from the Canaanites. Anybody remember the flood? That would be another pretty like, classic example of God being so angry. He decided to wipe out just about everybody on the face of the earth. Remember that? Okay, there's, there's the loss of Saul's kingship. 1 Samuel 28. Because you did not obey the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. So God's people were, were, were reprimanded. Saul lost his right to be king because he wouldn't carry out the Lord's fierce anger in, in doing battle and destroying the Amalekites. 
Whenever we think of God's, God's wrath and his anger, the story of Uzzah always comes up. And I always like to think of Uzzah as the boy next door. You know, this is just your average decent kid out there. You know, not conscripted to the army. He's roped in to help move the ark of God because they're going from A to B. And here's the story. And uh, people are dancing, uh, tambourines, everyone's having a good time. And the ark had to be carried in a special way by poles and only by Levites. If you were from another tribe, you weren't allowed to carry the ark. When they came to the freshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. So here we got these, these poor animals, obviously hit a speed bump in the road. Um, you know what an ox is like, you know, the leg caves in a little bit. Um, and Uzzah does what he feels is the right thing, kind of reaches out, doesn't want the precious ark of God to slip off the, the poles that's being carried on. And then we read the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So this is a story that makes people today do a double take because this doesn't really fit with our view of what God's like. Um, and and wow, one really can think, gee, that, that's like a bit of an overreaction. What's going on there? How can this be true? But, but that's what happened. And of course, David is very upset um, and makes the decision that he actually doesn't want the ark of God with him anymore. It's not, not worth the risk. But that's an interesting story and one we need to bear in mind. Another story, I think, that speaks about the wrath of God uh, toward even his own people is when there's a mutiny among God's people. Um, it's actually led by Miriam and Aaron, and they start rumors about Moses because they don't like his wife, uh, because they've, he's married a Cushite, and who are the Cushites anyway? And they start to say things, use this Moses guy, you know, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? God also speaks to us, you know, uh, you're not so special, Moses. Uh, and the Lord heard their mutiny, and then we're told that Moses was a very humble guy. And the Lord comes down and says, Miriam, come over here, and she gets a reprimand. God says, look, when I speak to prophets, I speak in dreams and in riddles, but not with Moses. He's in a very special category. And we read in verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them, Aaron and Miriam. And when the cloud lifted from the tent of meeting, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. So leprosy was an incurable disease. I mean, this was a shocking thing. Um, just the other day I was watching a, a video and I heard a Christian speaker saying that God could never give sickness to someone. You know, any sickness, definitely not from God. God can't give what God doesn't have. God doesn't have sickness, so he can't give it to you. Well, if you read the story at Face Family, you can see that God can make people sick. And not only can he, but he does. So not a nice thing to acknowledge, but that's what happened to Miriam. And it was because of the Lord's anger. 
for us parents. Here's a little parenting story. So uh, remember little Samuel, and he hears the voice of the Lord in the middle of the night. Samuel, I've got something to tell you. And he goes off to Eli, here I am, what do you need? A glass of water, what, rub your feet, what, what can I do for you, Eli? And it's no, 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 same thing happens, third time, Eli says, what you need to do is say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And do we all know what that message was that night? It was God saying, I've had it up to here with Eli's sons because they are a very bad bunch of priests. Um, and then we have this very interesting story um, about how, how, how Samuel, bottom line, he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Because, I mean, who wants to now? She, oh, what did God tell you? I'd love to know my personal prophecy. Oh, it's God's going to kill your sons because he's such a terrible father. And, of course, that did happen. Right. Moving swiftly on to Exodus 32 is, a, is another example of... Tell me if the mic is, is getting irritating, I can shift to the handheld. I heard it duck out there for a moment. Uh, the incident of the golden calf... Uh, you know the story. It was funny. That, do you know that it was the gold and the silver that the Egyptians had blessed the Israelites with? It was that blessing from God that got used to make the, the idol. There's like real irony in that. Um, but the Lord says to Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. I've rescued them out of Egypt. And now they're misrepresenting me with an idol. It was a bull, which is how the people represented God, because bulls are pretty strong, by the way. Um, so they thought they were sort of, you know, doing a good thing for God, but God say, hey, I'm not a bull. You know, that, that doesn't represent me. Um, God says to Moses, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So just as God destroyed everybody through the flood and then through Noah and his descendants and their wives started a new humanity, now again God's saying, once again, these Israelites, I've had it up to here. Um, I actually want to destroy them all. And Moses, I'll form a new nation out of you. And then God, Moses gets into this big discussion with God and says, oh, but that's going to give you a bad name, Lord, so please don't do that. And God relents. Why, why did the people spend 40 years in the wilderness? Here's my seventh example. It's because they were always complaining. They didn't appreciate what, what God had given to them. Verse 13 says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert 40 years until the whole generation of those who'd done evil in his sight was God. Ever wonder why those people moped around the desert for 40 years? It's because God was angry with them, and he was waiting for them to just die off through natural causes so that he could start again with the next generation. Is this, do you, beginning to see where I'm going with this, that some of these stories that I'm telling tonight, 
don't fit with the, the typical church narrative about a God that just keeps giving everybody endless chances. The fall of Samaria. Again, if you've not studied biblical history, and I hope you all have, but when we talk about Samaria, we mean the, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And they fell into a lot of sin. And at the end of the day, in 722 BC, God destroyed them all. All ten tribes were wiped out, pretty much. Which is why later in the Bible, they, they stopped speaking about Israel and they start to speak about Judah. Because Judah was the one big tribe left in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. The other ten tribes were in the north, and they got referred to as Israel. So afterward, we only left with, with technically two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, because, of course, Benjamin was God's favorite because he was the little baby brother of Joseph. So the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah were, were in the south. And you all know whether, whether um, the Samaritans came from. They were these 10 tribes that fell in 722 was destroyed by God they sort of intermarried with the Canaanites and then became the Samaritans and that's why the Jews hated them so much they were regarded as like judged of God you know terrible people apostates then um, Judah didn't learn from the the other 10 tribes of Israel so they went the similar way. God sent many prophets to them, but in 587, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, uh, smashed, the temple was utterly destroyed, um, and that was because God was angry with his people. And uh, they went off to Babylon, and that wasn't a happy time, and they lived for 70 years. And as we heard in the sermon a while ago, uh, God saying, folks, you're in Babylon here, make the most of it, because for most of you, this is going to be the rest of your life. So when you next quote Jeremiah 29, for the, no, they have plans that you have for me, Lord, just bear in mind that the plan of God for you might be, might be interesting. Okay, so let me just shock you now with a little bit more detail about the fall of Judah. And there's a whole book in the Bible, sorry, whole book in the Bible designed to give vent to the emotions of what God's people were, caught, were feeling because of what had happened to them. It's called the book of Lamentations, obviously, because it is a lament about this terrible, 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 Terrible things happened to us. We never believed that Jerusalem, God's favorite city, the joy of the whole earth, we never believed that enemies could come in and destroy it, but it happened. And these people were absolutely shell-shocked. So I just picked a few, a few quotes from the book of Lamentations. How the... And it's the Lord that's doing this. The book of Lamentations is not, oh, gee, Lord, how could you allow this terrible thing to happen to us? It's very much God has done this to us. We deserved it. It was the Lord. That's what the book of Lamentations is about. It's not, 
It's not trying to make excuses, blaming it on the devil. It's we have done this, we have sinned, and God has, has punished us profoundly. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. Verse 2, without pity, the Lord has swallowed us up and brought us into dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. Bottom line, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord is like an enemy. And it goes on and on and on. And let me show you the most shocking part of Lamentations 4. Verse 10, with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled the fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. So, so the famine was so terrible that presumably once children had died, they were so desperate, they, cook and, they cooked and ate them. I'm just telling you what, what's here. And here's that, that kind of worldview that they had. The kings of the earth did not believe, did not any of the world's people, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets, the iniquity of the priests. So here's another terrible, frightening example of God venting his wrath towards his own people. I thought I'd break the, the examples of God's wrath by talking now about some misconceptions about God's wrath, but I think it would be only right to give you an opportunity just to, to comment on any of the examples I've, I've shared thus far. Anybody want to say anything? Yes, Mark. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, there's there's a very well known word for God hating sin, and it's it's that God is holy. I mean, that's one of the meanings of holy. It also means set apart or different, but holiness. So I think, Mark, you know, all sin is offensive to God. Certainly, God puts up with some sin in our lives, um, and he disciplines us who are his children, and he's working to change us. And there are times, clearly, and this is where things get complicated, that God will punish one person for a sin, but not another for the same sin. So the lawyers among us are going to get get upset with that because it's not always the crime fits the punishment or there are different punishments for the same crime. But we have to know that God knows what he's doing. Um, yeah, because people got stoned for collecting firewood on the Sabbath, but we don't do that anymore. Uh, nor did Jesus. You know, he wouldn't even let the woman who was caught in adultery be stoned. Although he did say, go ahead and do it. Let's keep Moses' law. But the one of you that is without sin, 
you know, you, you stopped. Um, and so that was a good way to show mercy and uphold Moses, the Mosaic law at that time. Okay, Marika. Oh, Dill, right. Right, right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. 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 Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, God, God feels wrath and expresses wrath because he's made a judgment. Um, but God can make a judgment about something but not reveal his wrath. So, so judgment and wrath are separate things, but they'll never be wrath until God's actually made a, a judgment about a situation. Because it's not just some crazy feeling that pops out of nowhere. You know, God assesses a person's mode of what's going on and on the basis of that. Would that answer the question? Yeah. So obviously we, we're talking about judgment. Yeah. yeah. Mareka. Yep. I'm warming up. <laughs> because the worst examples are definitely in the New Testament. That's for sure. Okay, which brings, brings us to our first misconception about the wrath of God. Sorry, Claudine, I didn't see you there. Oh. Yeah, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, that's a given. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. I mean, that's a novel punishment. I mean, you could be hiking in Israel and come across her. <laughs> or where was she? I mean, in, either in Sodom or Gomorrah. Yeah. Okay, so there, there's this talk among Christians that God's wrath is, is an Old Testament idea. And there really couldn't be anything further from the truth. Um, and we're going to see that when it comes to the New Testament, <laughs> there are as many examples um, of, of God expressing his wrath. Se second misconception, I think people have this idea that there's something morally wrong with God getting angry. You know, why isn't he more gracious? How can God judge people like that? You know, doesn't he know they're frail and weak and born sinful, etc.? This is not God losing his temper, being out of sorts, having a bad day. You know, this is a this is a controlled 
carefully assessed, fair expression of judgment that, that God is, is putting out. And then probably one of the most challenging things we need to just consider briefly is that, the, and, and when I've preached on this before, people have said to me, no, 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 no. God, God's not wrathful. He's just disciplining people. You know, it's like a father who, or mother who feels such great love for their child when they spank them, which we could do in the old days, and it really worked quite well. Um, you know, this is just parents disciplining their children, but actually feeling a huge amount of love. Um, the, the problem with saying God's wrath is discipline is that when you read further in the story, you find that God's killing people. Um, so that kind of tends to undermine the discipline motive in, in these particular instances. So, so this wrath and, and anger of God is not redemptive. And, and, and as disciplinarians and parents and whatever, we all believe today that discipline is, needs to be um, you know, it's about shaping people, helping them to be better, and, and that's how we need to practice discipline. But, but in many of these instances, that's clearly not going... You know, when God destroyed everybody in the flood, the idea wasn't, okay, now we're going to help these people to be better humans. Okay, let's continue with our examples here. And you did pick to come here tonight. I mean, I warned you what this was about. Okay. So Korah's rebellion is another of these great Old Testament stories that, that we probably don't read enough about. And, and even when I read this one, I was like, wow, I'd forgotten this story. But once again, there's a group that comes to oppose Moses. And they've really got it in for Moses. And, and their message to Moses is, you have gone too far, Moses. And they're saying, isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? Now they're all saying, but Moses, you know, we were so happy as slaves in Egypt. And now you've brought us into the stupid desert. And how's this as their leader? And now you want to lord it over us. And you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from the assembly so I can put an end to them at once. Moses and Aaron fall face down and they say, God, will you be angry with everybody with only one or two sins? And God says, just sort of clear the way here a little bit. And then we get to the part, verse 31. And you can read it all yourself. As soon as he's finished saying all of this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. I mean, how's that as an example of God's wrath on, on the Israelites for moaning about Moses, accusing him of lording it over them, of, of not being good to them? 
God just says, okay, everybody who doesn't like Moses, you come all stand over here and bring all your stuff with you. Okay, you know, press a button, you know, ground opens, you know, everybody goes down. I mean, that is truly what happened. But it, it didn't, then now people are really angry. You've killed the Lord's people. This is terrible. So the glory of the Lord appears. And then God decides to zap people with plague. Wrath has come out from the Lord. A plague has started. Verse 49 says 14,700 people died from the plague. Those were the people that got cross with God because he killed the other people. Okay, now we're finished with the Old Testament. Would you like us to get to the God of love revealed in the New Testament? Okay, I know just the place to begin. John 3.16, let's start there and just move on a few verses. Here in John's Gospel, there's this idea that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So again, this is like a very generic verse. And you can say, no, it's purely theoretical. It's just God's way of saying the people aren't saved. Yeah, that's for sure. If, if, if you're a Christian... And, and, the, and you've been saved and the Lord is in your life, then you have life. But here John is telling us in the third chapter of his gospel that for people who, who have rejected the Son, who are not saved, God's wrath abides on them. That is a present continuous tense. It is their reality. God's wrath abides upon them, remains on them. Then in the verse Roland preached last night, which was quite interesting that I'm doing this talk today because we didn't really plan that. He preached on Romans 1 verse 18 last night. This verse talks about how, how God is angry with the world who's in rebellion to him because they suppress the truth. And although it's obvious that God exists, they refuse to acknowledge him. And so Paul writes that, the, and again, notice this is in the present tense. This is not God is going to reveal his wrath. It's what's happening right now. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And you know Romans 1 very well. So. Then I, I thought of this verse from Ephesians chapter 2 where Again, there, there are two kinds of people in this world. There's the Ephesians 2.10 kind of a person who is a new creation, being recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're hopefully Ephesians 2.10 people. But then there's the Ephesians 2 people that we once were who are objects of God's wrath. And Paul can write, all of us, we were just like everybody else, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, i.e. everybody else, we were by nature objects of wrath. I mean, why, where we get the idea that 
that everybody's an object of God's affection, I, I really don't know. Because this verse tells us that prior to you being saved and experiencing God's grace and Him reaching out into your life, you're an object of His wrath, and the wrath of God abides upon you. When we get to the book of Acts, we come across Ananias and Sapphira. And I've, I've tried to spin the story every way I can. You know, did Ananias just get a heart attack because he was so shocked that he was sin, his sin was found out? Oh, I'm, I've been caught out. Ah, heart attack falls down dead. But it doesn't really fit with the narrative because the chances of his wife having the exact same heart attack a few hours later, unless they had an equally bad diet. But you know what I mean? So here in the church, we have two people dropping down dead, even though they were giving a fat offering. The problem with their offering was that they were pretending to give more than they were giving. Let's spend a little bit on this one. We need to read this very carefully because this is a verse that talks about Christians getting sick and because it's God making them sick. Uh, it starts off, whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man, a person ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then it says this, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for not dozed off in church, but dead. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Let me just unpack this little, a little bit. And it is a confusing passage. You know, what exactly is the sin here? Is this the sin of I'm taking communion, but you're my sister, my brother in Christ, and I actually don't care about you, and so I'm being a hypocrite because I'm pretending to be reconciled with God Meanwhile, I'm treating another Christian terribly. Is that the sin of not recognizing the body of Christ, recognizing that this brother, sister is actually my, my brother and sister in Christ? Or, or is the sin I'm not really appreciating what Christ has done on the cross for me and I'm kind of just casually having communion? You know, is that what the sin is? But... but Neither of them are particularly big sins, are they? But we are told here that in the Corinthian church, this is the reason why some people in the church are sick. And it's actually the reason why some people in the church have, have died. So do what you want with that. But there you have it. Anybody got a, got a comment on this passage? I mean, we reference it so often before communion, but we kind of just gloss over, oh, that's why some of you are sick and some in the church have died. Now, hey, I'm definitely not saying everybody who dies, in the, I mean, there comes a time when people die. It's not everybody who dies is because they're under the judgment of God, but we need to recognize there are times when that can be an option. 
Yeah, Jason. Oh, yeah, you missed it then. Okay, oh, well, 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 all right, Jason, that's fine. Let's have the previous verse, whatever it was. Okay. Okay, yep. Okay, good. I don't want to make it like a, a critical judgment on that without carefully studying what is meant by nature in that passage. So let me pass on that or phone a friend. Yep. Okay, we go forward. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yes. Correct. I would concur with you there. Yep. Yes. Yep. I mean, verse 32 affirms what you've just said. He's saying, okay, verse 31, if we judged ourselves, in other words, we searched our hearts carefully before we participated in communion, and we made sure we were right with our brothers and sisters, and we were, we were respectfully remembering the death of Jesus. So if we were to judge ourselves, ooh, what I did back then, what I said was not right. If we judged ourselves, then God wouldn't have to. And the, the, the wonderful thing is that if you're a Christian, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And the fact that God disciplines us shows us that we are his children. This is discipline, you know, from the Lord. And the goal is so that we will not be condemned with the world. So yeah, that is the outcome here, even if it means making a person sick and even ending their life earlier than could have been, it's so that we won't be condemned with the world. So those people are still saved. It, it is punitive, yeah. And another example, and this is another radical one, would be 1 Corinthians 5, where the church gets to hand over to Satan people in immorality, that is severe, and the funny thing about that is that the goal is also that their souls may be saved, but it's about a, a withdrawing, a deliberate withdrawing of God's blessing on that person's life so that they can be taught a, a lesson or two by the devil with the end result that hopefully they will be saved, yes. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, if you're just pretending to be a Christian, that, that's not a good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay, okay. Right. Okay. 
okay? Even though it uses the term judgment, who is the ju- isn't it God doing the judging? That's, that's fine. Uh, then there's the warning of Hebrews, and this is a very well-known passage. It's the lettuces passage. It's the salad passage. Uh, the first lettuce is, let us consider how we may spur one another to, uh, to love and good deeds. The next lettuce is verse 25, let us not give up meeting together, and so it goes on. Um, it's definitely talking to Christians, and it ends with the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I think there are even times where God does judge Christians, and uh, if we fall into sin, and this is talking about serious sin, it's really people kind of renouncing their faith. Um, There's Peter's warning Okay, it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And this is New Testament stuff. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I mean, that's a very good, interesting question. And will no doubt in some of your minds create a lot of theological problems. Moving swiftly on. Okay, now we get to the part of the Bible that is the worst description of God's wrath. So, remember I said that I thought the New Testament said a lot more about God's wrath. Well, in the the book of Revelation, there's a lot that happens. But one of the things that happens are the seven bowls of wrath. This is not the devil's wrath. This is God's judgment on humanity that's in rebellion against him, that is not worshiping him, that has written God off. And the Bible says that in the last days, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And there's seven bowls of wrath that Jesus initiates. It's pictured by blowing a trumpet. Who can, who can open the seals? Well, nobody's worthy. We're looking everywhere in heaven. Who can kick this thing off? Okay, we found somebody, Jesus. He opens the seal, and then things start to happen on earth. Um, And the part of Revelation 6 that I want you to notice um, is verse 17, where, where the unsaved and people in rebellion to God are having such a terrible time They're saying, I wish a rock would fall on my head and just kill me right now. They're wanting to die. They call out to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Who are these people so scared of? Who is is issuing judgment and punishment upon the people? Well, here it is. Hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is talking about the end times building up to the return of Christ. God is going to inflict judgment on the world as a way of letting them know what's in store for them if they don't repent. Again, Roland preached on this, and I was actually struck by many of the passages I'm sharing today. He shared, he shared this one. You know, we always talk about, and when Jesus comes back, his robe will be dipped in blood. And I always used to think, yes, because he died on the cross for me. And that's why there's blood on his robe. But that's not, that's not his robe is, is dipped in blood because he's been out on his horse with his sword killing so many pagans that the blood has risen to be like a flood of blood, and that's why his robe is dipped in blood. I mean, this is not the kind of story we tell in Sunday school, but I'm truly not making this up. Okay, Revelation 19. You know, we always dream about the return of Christ. His eyes are blazing fire. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven are, are following him. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, ta'ethne, the, the Gentiles, the, the God, ungodly people. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So friends, this is Jesus in action here. This is not some rogue angel. This is not the devil. This is Jesus when he returns, um, expressing the judgment and wrath of God. And somehow we have to factor this into our theology. Um, and it actually gets worse, but I, I won't read that. We're beginning to wrap up. How are we for time? Half past eight. Oh, so we've kind of almost been going an hour. Oh, I better be, get go quickly. Okay, then no questions now. Okay, so, so some, some, some observations about God's wrath as we wrap it up before we go to question time among yourselves. So what I've been describing about God's wrath is just, appropriate, and good. God's wrath flows out of his perfect holiness and his loving nature. God is not kind of this two-personality dualism idea, the yin and the yang, sometimes he's being good, then he's being bad. It's, this, is, this is a just God reacting rightly towards people that have defied him and ruined his creation and ruined others. So th this is the first thing I want to say about God's wrath. Secondly, it is a present reality. This is happening right now. Remember John chapter 3. He who does not have the Son of God, God's wrath abides on that individual. The wrath of God is being revealed. Thirdly, the Bible talks about God's wrath being stored up. In other words, sometimes God can be really angry with somebody, but he won't express that anger. He'll just let it build up like in a big godly jojo tank of anger. 
It's kind of like, wow, you really made me angry today, but I'm not going to do anything. The anger's just going to sit there. Oh, you've made me angry again. The, the wrath is just building up, and people think, oh, God's uh, like, I'm cool with God. He's never going to do anything. Here's the reference, Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Oh, I feel like a prophet of doom. Then there's, there's also a future reality, like the, the, the second coming of Christ is referred to as, as the, you know, the, this day of wrath. Who's going to rescue us from the coming wrath? And, and it's going to be Jesus. There's also going to be an intensifying of God's wrath. In other words, I think... As the world goes to hell, and I'm using the, the proverb, um, more and more people are going to experience the displeasure of God in this world. And that can manifest itself as a tsunami. It, it can be disease. It can be violence and bloodshed. I mean, we see this from the book of Revelation. These are the bowls of wrath that God pulls out on humanity and then things happen on our planet and takes the lives of people. Also, God's wrath is personal. Um, what can I say about that? It's not outsourced to the angels. These are feelings that God feels and, and God acts. And, and the instrument of his wrath is Jesus. It's not that Jesus is the good guy and the vengeful God, the father of the Old Testament, is the bad cop. No, they're working in concert with each other. And it's going to be Jesus that's going to execute judgment on this world. And of course, the ultimate expression of God's wrath is, is hell. And Jesus spoke a lot about hell. Just uh, quickly, two cliches not taught in the Bible, and I already alluded to this one, the unconditional love of God. I don't know where this idea came from, but there is no verse in the Bible that God's love is unconditional. It's a kind of contemporary, I'm a counselor, psychologist, you're going to sit down and talk to me, and whatever you say to you, I'm going to listen to you and not judge you. And yes, that is what you do in a therapeutic situation. But that doesn't apply to God. He doesn't love people unconditionally. Then there's this also the idea, love the sinner, hate the sin. This is another thing that we've all grown up with. And again, I believe this and I practice this. I want to love the sinner and hate the sin, and I'm happy to do that. But, but it's not how God operates. Um, okay, that's a phrase that isn't found in the Bible. It is people that are the objects of God's wrath. It's not the stuff they're doing that makes God, God angry. It's the person that's doing it <laughs> is the object of God's wrath. And God doesn't judge the, the bad thing, the sins, he judges the sinner. And when Jesus was our substitute on the cross, it was him as a person that bore the wrath of God and our salvation. It wasn't, it wasn't 
yeah, so this whole thing of love the sinner, hate the sinner, we need to do this because we're frail and we are sinners, um, but, but it's not something that applies to God. When, when God eventually sends people to hell, which is what Jesus taught is going to happen, um, yeah, that he's going to send sinners to hell, not sins. Okay, I really want to heat things up a little bit, and I know we're running out of time, but I've come across a whole lot of verses that talk about God hating people. Okay, can you handle that tonight? <laughs> why, why not? <laughs> I mean, I was shocked when I did a little study like this, because I was thinking about, you know, God loves everybody all the time. And then I came across the odd verse about God saying, well, he hates certain people and actually hates them from his soul. So, so let's find out who God hates. Here's a very interesting verse in Psalm 50. This was something that I only picked up on a couple of months ago. There's this verse that says, God says, verse 21 of Psalm 50, these things you've done and I've kept silent. And then this is God's accusation against people. You thought I was altogether like you. How's that for a, a statement? God's saying, you thought that I was like you, just like you, that I would react like you in situations, like God's thinking, like, absolutely not. And then he says, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces. I read that in my quiet time a while ago. God's going to threatening to tear somebody to pieces. Sounds a bit gruesome. Hopefully it's a metaphor. But here are a few verses about God hating various people. Again, not memory verses from Sunday school. Psalm 5.5, 5, the arrogant can't stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. I mean, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Psalm 11.5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. You know, just think of, of a terrible crime being committed, a violent crime. Don't think to yourself that God loves that individual. This psalm here says that God hates them from his soul. There's a couple more verses. Okay, ways in, oh gee, there's a lot to this talk, isn't there? Okay, I'll go quickly. What are some of the ways in which God expresses his wrath? Well, he withdraws his favor and his blessing and his protection from people. This is what we see in Romans chapter 1. God says, you, you want to sin? You want to ignore me? You don't want to thank me for what I've given you? Well, then I'm just going to give you over and let you do whatever you want to do and see where that kind of life gets you. Sometimes God expresses his, his wrath, as we've seen, through drought, through war, through disease, through hardship that come to people. These are things that God does. And we're fools if we think God's not doing these things in our world. Sometimes through natural disasters, we've seen that through death, through health. Okay, 
So here are some, dis any questions on what I've said before we do discussion? In fact, maybe we need straight to discussion questions. Are you up for a few questions? Or are you in the mood just to listen? Or are you in the mood to go home? You've had enough. I think a little bit of discussion in groups. So if you don't mind, if you need to go, you can go. Um, so will you mind, Amy? Okay. I would say it is a possibility. <laughs> and that all those verses about it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, well, what's going to happen to the, the ungodly? So I think as we work out our salvation, sometimes God disciplines us. But as, yeah, as Christians, I do believe we're in a covenant relationship with God. And if we're truly saved, he will only discipline us and we will be saved. But, but that's getting, uh, yeah. Thank you, Amy. I'd love to talk more about that, but then we wouldn't be able to do what we're going to do next. So, so this, let's just quickly form little groups of five, four or five, but not six, because that's too many. Can you do that quickly for me? <laughs> or do you really, do you want me to just keep talking? You, you want me to keep, okay. Anything to get out of having to talk and think. Okay, so these are sort of my, my kind of rhetorical questions at the end of, of tonight. So, so my first question is this. On what do we base the theology that God's attitude is, is loving towards everybody? Because this is something that's in popular Christianity. It's proclaimed from the rooftops that God loves everybody all of the time. And this is like a very strong theme within, within the Christian community. Um, so I want to ask you, where in Scripture is God's love declared towards the unsaved and towards people in rebellion against God, as opposed to those that are in a covenant relationship with God? And you will point me to John 3.16, rightly so, for God so loved the world, and that's a whole story in and of itself. Um, and we probably can't get into that tonight. But as I've said before, if you look at all the gospel presentations in the book of Acts, and there are about 28, is that correct, Lucky? Because he wrote them up for me. There are 28 gospel presentations in the book of Acts, and not once is God's love ever mentioned as part of the gospel message. So it's interesting that we have as our major theme in the Christian West this idea of God's love and affection for people that's really not a particular strong theme in Scripture. Right. Correct. Yes. Yep. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yes. 
So I would totally agree with you, Neil, that the death of Christ on the cross is a massive statement about God's desire for people to be saved, but he doesn't, he doesn't force people to be saved, but he did act in mercy. He's made a way, but if people reject that way, they can expect nothing but his wrath. And when he does express wrath at that point, it's not going to be this kind of, oh, I love you, oh, I must be cross with you. Yeah. yeah. So. The, other, the other concern that I think a lot of people have is the fact of the matter is, like it or not, the majority of people that I don't believe have had a bit of exposure to the gospel of the internet. Right. Yep. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yes. Neil, what you, what you're saying is is helpful to and sheds light on the subject. I would respond to you that the teaching of Scripture is that everybody is born a sinner, and that the default position of everybody who enters this world is that they're born with a sinful nature, they're a son of Adam, and they are unsaved, they are totally depraved. And it's only by God's grace that God reaches out to some, we don't know why not all, and, and some turn and believe and are saved. I would say for those that don't ever hear the gospel, God will judge them on the light that they have. And there are examples of Muslims in, in Saudi, people in tribes in the Amazon, who in their own way have reached out to God and tried to have faith. Um, and God will credit that to them as righteousness. But I think if we're going to say, look, people are born and they're all deserving of salvation, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that fits with the biblical revelation. It was Robin, then James. Okay. Right. 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 Awesome. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yeah. 
Robin, I would... Okay. Right. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yep, yep. Yes. I, w I would pick up and say that we're in John, is it 4 John 1? I mean, 1 John 4, yeah, 1 John 4, 1. Behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That, yeah, that's believers saying, wow, isn't it incredible that, that God has adopted us into his family? He's, he's lavished us with his love. So many of those verses are about Christians, but we make a mistake when we take verses like that and we apply them willy-nilly to Joe Sinner in the street. Yeah, James. I, I wouldn't say that, which is why I haven't said it tonight. And I'm, I'm trying to correct what I think is an imbalance, but I certainly don't agree with the God loves people unconditionally no matter what they're doing. I think the Bible clearly teaches that God reaches a point with people where he actually expresses his wrath to them. Let me just quickly show you the rest of the questions, even if we don't get to answer them. Um, so my second thing is, is the answer to say that God feels both anger and love for people at the same time? You know, is this what's going on? Um, because this is often presented as a solution. Yes, God is really angry with person X who's living in sin, but he also really feels love for them. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that, also given the verses about God hating certain categories of person and the example we see of God judging people terminally uh, in situations, and people sending, sending people to hell, um, and the judgment that Christ will execute one day, how, how do we fit that? If Jesus really loves everybody all the time, why is he going to chop their head off? You know, I, I, I struggle with that one. I mean, Neil, do you want to have a go at answering that? How, do, how does the picture of God judging and these many of the examples, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know you're always up for a, for a good question. Um, how would you square the view that God does love people all the time and is always gracious to people, or, you know, with what, many of what we've read, much of what we've read tonight? You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I added a verse to my PowerPoint tonight that wasn't part of the PowerPoint just because I thought this question might come out. So I'll deal with it at the very end when we're done. Okay, um, you. Yep. 
Right. Well, well, the problem with that, that metaphor and image is that when God kills people, it's hard to see how that could be like intended as discipline because now they're dead. So, so I don't think that is a solution that fits the problem. Back to your question. Yep, okay. <laughs> Here's an idea. Okay. And this is brilliant. If you take love in the Corinthian sense, yep. as loving despite of it, and just keeping no record of wrong. Or we could switch it around, which is what I would do and say, there was a moment in history when in, in one single incredible act of mercy and grace, Jesus came into the world and died on the cross. Um, but that was the, the momentary demonstration of God's commitment to saving the world, in spite of all that they'd done. But... Also, I can't accept that God would live by the 1 Corinthians 13 definition of love. So, you know, God keeps no records of wrong. So this person murders like 10 people, God's like, okay, don't we? you know, I, I couldn't accept God believes all things, um, is forever patient, is kind. You know, God clearly runs out of patience. And that's why I was at pains to actually cover all these horrible examples from the Old Testament because somehow we have to be able to factor that and fit it into our theology. And I think some Christians must either live with a massive amount of cognit cognitive dissonance where we're holding two crazy different ideas that are meant to fit but clearly don't, um, or we've got to shift our understanding of the nature and character of God. And, and folks, let me just put on the record, I certainly don't have all the answers to this. Um, but, but I do want to question the, the general narrative that we've been sold about what God is like and what God thinks of people. Um, and I think the whole thing of hell also brings everything to focus. Is God forever going to be in heaven thinking, gee, I so feel so terrible about, you know, Hitler there burning in hell. Ooh, I so wish the best for him. Um, I, I'm just not sure God's going to be 
be feeling and thinking that. I think there comes a point where God writes people off and that's it. And they get damned. Yes. How you behave. I mean, many of us are here, I think, because we were fortunate enough to be born in a good place with good parents and raised in good circumstances. So we appear, at least externally, to be good people. Others are not so fortunate. So again, it comes back to my comment about earlier on about the justice of God. I mean, if you believe that God is just, and I do, then it seems to me that there's going to be a different way of, of dealing with people who, who, are, who are bad because they, they come out of bad circumstances. And people like us, who may appear to be good, maybe we're not so good behind, behind the facades. I think it's just the whole, the whole lot of stuff out yep. there that's, that's not absolutely clear. Yeah, it's not absolutely clear, and I too experience cognitive dissonance on this issue, and I do want to say that Jesus says it's hard for the righteous to be saved, and the prostitutes are welcomed into the kingdom, so, and it's the prisoners and the, the, the people that have really messed up their lives that are often the quicker ones to be saved, so actually I would turn that on its head. Um, it's those that have been forgiven much that love much. And actually, your happy, leafy suburb person is, is less likely to accept the Lord. Peter, and then I must finish up here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. That's helpful. And and just from a pure numbers point of view, God would definitely be described as being just, righteous, and holy more often than, than loving. 
And, and the, the main term for God's love in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word chesed, which is actually covenantal love. Your loving kindness is how it's often translated, one word, loving kindness. That's always a covenantal word, only used of people that are in relationship with God. Let me quickly flick through this because I know I want to honor the finishing time. It's already 9.02. Okay. Uh, are the biblical stories where God expresses his wrath consistent with him feeling great love? Okay, I've covered that. Okay, I've covered this. We ought to be careful not to apply verses about God's love written towards Christians and righteous Jews in the Old Testament to the unsaved. And this is a mistake. We take a verse, behold how amazing God's love that we should be called children who are lavished on us. And we take that and we sort of apply it to everybody. You can't do that. Um, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and I want to end on a happy note because you have to do that. Um, so here's a verse from the book of Lamentations. For us as God's covenant people, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. This is what the people wrote, the survivors for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So even after eating their children and after people had been attacked and murdered and plundered, they could still write, because of the Lord's great love, for us as his covenant people, we are not, we are not consumed totally. And then there's also the verse that Robin referenced earlier. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So I'm, I'm going to end here, and then Jason and I are going to look at Romans 9, where he says, what if God were to have patience with the vessels prepared for wrath, for destruction? Yeah. But I don't want to inflict that on all of you. You've had to put up with enough. Yep. Okay. Well, when he came the first time, he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Yeah, he did leave out and the day of vengeance of our God because that was going to be down the line, which is what's next. Lord, these have been very disturbing stories and they don't sit well with us. And Lord, we do believe that, that you are a God of love, that love is part of your character, that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as, as the psalmist wrote. And thank you, Lord, that we are the recipients of your love. That though there's nothing good or special in any of us, you chose by your grace to open our eyes and to draw us to yourself. And we have come to know you as a loving Father. But help us, Lord, as we process what's been shared tonight as we think about these things, and we pray that you would lead us to a fuller understanding, help us to avoid um, foggy thinking and, and misrepresenting you, Lord, to a, to a world that, 
yeah, that is in rebellion towards you. So, Lord, yeah, thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. And help us to live in a way that, that honors you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.